This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the web box podcast i'm matt chorley bringing the best of my time to the show monday to thursday 10 to 1 if you ever want to come on and play the quiz can you get to number 10 uh, it's very easy. Ten general knowledge questions loosely connect ten cabinet jobs. The more questions you get, right, the better the job you get, taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. And if you come on during the month of February, you might get your hands on some tickets to my stand-up tour, because I'm just generous like that. I'm going all around the country. If you want the details, go to mattjolly.com. And, uh, yeah, during February, we'll be giving away pairs of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on and do the quiz. So, uh, matt.jolly at times.radio if you want to come and play the quiz. Uh, mattjolly.com if you want to buy tickets. Lovely stuff. Uh, right, coming up on the podcast today, to mark Holocaust Memorial Day, I've been speaking to Stephen Pollard, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, the former editor of the Jewish Chronicle. He stood down last month, talking about his reflections on Holocaust Memorial Day, why it's so important that we remember, why he stayed as editor for so long, and the state of anti-Semitism in Britain today, what happened with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, and all that really interesting conversation coming out with him. In a moment, the columnists, uh, we've got uh, no Indian night today, but it's Martha Gill and James Marriott talking about... The decline of culture, but also Barry Cryer. We had the sad news uh, while we were on air that Barry Cryer had passed away. Uh, but first, um, a bit of sad news to bring you on the podcast. Regular listeners to the podcast will know a couple of times we've spoken to Claire Fisher. She was a f- former civil servant. She was living with bowel cancer. Uh, the last time we heard from her on the podcast was a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to her while she was in, uh, she'd moved into a hospice. And we talked about what, the, what that meant for her and how she was preparing uh, to face the end of her life. Well, sadly, we got the news yesterday that Claire had passed away. On the radio, we played back uh, some of her interview that I did with her. If you want to go back and listen to it, you just, just search wherever you get your podcast from. Search for Dying in a Hospice at Times Red Box and you'll be able to bring it up. And Claire's story is just incredible. Um, and it was incredibly moving to hear it back, uh, knowing that she'd now passed away. But we will return to the issue of end-of-life care and uh, palliative care and how it's so difficult for some people to get into a hospice uh, and that sort of thing. We'll turn to that issue again in the future. But just wanted to um, send lots of love and support to uh, Claire's friends and family. Uh, thank you for all the messages that you've you've sent in. Right, it's uh, we kick off then, uh, as ever, the podcast with the Columnist panel. Today, like I said, it's with James Marriott and Martha Gill. So, uh, James, you've written your column today trying to be slightly more upbeat. Yeah, I've been I've been told off for, for pessimism. And actually, <laughs> I bumped into a reader in the street recently who who said she was worried about me. 
She was worried, worried I'd lost my uh, my joie de vivre. This is a fan. You've been spotted in the street by a fan. Um, it did it did happen, but I mean, I think she I think she considered herself less approaching me, but more intervening uh, <laughs> with me psychologically um, to kind of I think she felt it was her responsibility to like check up on me. Um, so I'm trying to be more optimistic. And one of the things I am optimistic about is. There's been so much stuff recently. Everywhere I see these, um, a real kind of theme in newspapers. I read two pieces last week talking about how modern culture is terrible. It's really declined. Um, and a lot of the things people say about it are that it is extremely, extremely repetitive and just kind of reworking and reworking these like ancient characters, ancient themes, ancient ideas from the past. So, um, there's an article in the Financial Times um, complaining about the new Beatles documentary that came out last year. It's an eight-hour documentary about an album that was that was released in 1970. There's a new Sex in the City. There's another Matrix film. There are all these superhero films. And the kind of general theme is, oh, my God, why are we just There's redoing no new the ideas. same? There's no new ideas. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yeah, exactly. And um, my thesis, my very un-James Marriott thesis was, everything is actually fine. Let's all be positive. <laughs> now, do you act... So, I'm interested in this. So, you write your, your miserable stuff every week, <laughs> and then one person in the street tells you, uh, which we thought were strongly held opinions and deeply held thoughts, having, having done endless reading, one person in the street tells you to cheer up, and now you've got a completely new set of opinions. Exactly. No, that's... No, this is actually, this is actually a genuine... This is a genuine thing I mean, that I've... That's why you'll survive as a columnist. If, uh, <laughs> if you don't like these opinions, don't worry, I have others. No, this is actually... This actually is a genuinely... Something I genuinely am sincerely... Uh, positive about because I mean I always think it's interesting when um, you feel something instinctually and then you kind of examine it and you're like hang on I may feel this thing but when I thought about it is it true and obviously you know people often go on about the decline of the novel uh, the decline of cinema and these are these are things that I you know these are things that I love um, being slightly old-fashioned you know I love novels I, it makes me very sad that novels aren't the center yeah. of the cultural world anymore <laughs> but I think I have to kind of you have to take a step back and be like you know, once upon a time, there were all these amazing quotes from when novels were first invented in the 18th century of people saying, oh, novels are a disaster. People are addicted to novels. Um, they're rotting people's <laughs> brains. Um, there's these great stories about like, um, there's a kind of scare, there were scare stories in the 18th century about mothers would be sitting reading novels and like neglecting their children because they're so addicted to novels. Um, and it's and just like... It's, and now it's phones. Yeah, exactly. And at yeah. a certain point, just to be like, my pessimism is just this kind of, thing that comes up throughout history about absolutely everything and you know actually probably it's all going to be fine i might not like what comes after novels and i may be you a lonely know, you, weirdo you reading know novels. there are other things after novels like you know you know about tv and film yeah I, yes yes yeah. i uh, uh yeah Music. i mean i still do prefer novels yeah. but um uh, those are also good martha is is james right about this is it, is it uh, we're not in a period of terminal cultural decline yeah i i I have to agree, his argument was very compelling. Although I suppose um, well, the problem is that it's it's film is in a period of terminal cultural decline. I suppose you've got to admit that. And it is the thing that's most expensive and all the money's being poured into. So we're seeing this death writ particularly large in Technicolor. And then all these other bits of culture, which James talks about in the piece, are sort of, which are all very fragmented, popping up everywhere. Um, are much le have much less money. <laughs> so I suppose what we do see is cultural decline, whereas, of course, it's uh, secretly thriving. But uh, all the thriving places um, are, are, are much worse funded, I suppose, is the problem. And also, is it a bit, you know, because these things go in waves a bit, TV at the moment is amazing. 
you know, oh, and, yeah. and, uh, and so it doesn't matter. I mean, whereas in the, in the part, even allowing for, you know, streaming and all that, whereas in the past we might have gone and looked at watching a film on TV, the TV is now so good. Yeah. Um, that... Can you see the... Sorry. No, that's what I was going to... Yeah, go on, Martha. Um, yeah, and you see this sort of whiplash among prominent actors like Leonardo DiCaprio, who I think spent a long time complaining about about who's one of these people James talks about who's complaining about Marvel films dominating everything and the death of cinema. Um, uh, because, of course, um, the, the best thing to do as an actor in, in sort of his early yeah. career was to be in film. And now it's TV and all these film actors are having to lower themselves to do TV, which, of course, is where everything is happening and where the best acting and the best... Uh, the, the best developed stories, the best writers are now. And, you know, if you're an actor who wants to be in work, there's just more work. Don't make one 90-minute film if you can make a 10-part series that might get picked up and, you know, more and all of that. Yeah, and Honestly, it's just... T- James, when, once you discover television, you are going to be in Clover. So I, I have discovered television, <laughs> and I agree that it's fantastic. Um, I finally finished watching Succession recently. And what, I mean, what is, what is better than that? And it always makes you think of the way that, you know... Um, Quite recently, people, you know, were talking about oh, our, decla- our our attention spans have declined. How in the past did people read these enormous Victorian novels that were 800 pages long and were so detailed? And you can kind of imagine people in the future being like, oh, our attention spans have declined. How in the past did people watch these immensely long television shows like Succession? They were so in-depth. They had so much psychological complexity. And yeah, I just kind of think art forms move on and, you know, it's really good. What's better than Succession? Um yeah, I, I mean, I everyone thought it was that, quite but... funny how how James Cameron um, decided that the next best thing in film, there was a story a couple of weeks ago, was to make an eight hour epic I film. <laughs> it's the kind of the dying industry desperately trying to get on board with a fashionable new thing, like when newspapers all started trying to emulate BuzzFeed disastrously a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, that was just, a, there should be a law that no film should be over two hours long, I think. No, I completely agree. You know, the, the, in fact, actually, just, just editing, the death of editing, you know, long reads, which are not long, are long reads just because of the internet. If you had to make it fit in a newspaper, you know, um, long reads are too long, films are too long. Yeah, and I think it's like when things become a bit, um, when things become a bit sort of prestigious and have this aura of, oh, this is a very special, important yeah. thing, you know, um, happens to when you become a famous novelist, people just stop editing your books because everyone's scared of you. And I think yes. you know, everyone goes, oh, it's a long read. Well, it's like Quentin Tarantino films. There's nobody there to tell him anymore. Nobody is brave enough to say, what on this earth is, is really this? boring. Why is there a, a Western in the middle of this film? Take it out. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the subject of, um, it's a sort of, it's on the subject of art and taking, you know, the endless conversations about taking down statues and so on, uh, Martha, you've, You've written recently about Eric Gill. Explain, first of all, who Eric Gill was and your connection to him. Oh, yes. Well, um, Eric Gill was my great-great-uncle, and so I'm always particularly interested when stories about him emerge. Um, And for this piece, I was asked to kind of go back and and, and, and find some some juicy anecdotes about the fact that Eric Gill was my great-great-uncle. And uh, so I phoned up all all my relatives, but they were all sort of strangely tight-lipped about it. It was almost as if there was another even bigger family secret they were hiding. I don't know. It sort of became strangely difficult to get, draw anecdotes out of them, um, uh, which I found quite odd because, of course, um, having this very disreputable artist in the family is one of my most favourite anecdotes. Um, But, yes, uh, I suppose I wrote in this column um 
uh, my thesis was that actually it's quite exciting to live in an age where people are so exercised about art that they're trying to uh, knock down statues and uh, take them down. Um, and in fact, we should celebrate it. And so the, the issue with this is that it was, it was a particular um, call from sexual abuse survivors yes. that there's a statue in Westminster Cathedral uh, that they said should be uh, removed, um, uh, saying that you know you shouldn't have the artwork of a paedophile in Westminster Cathedral. That was the that was the argument. I mean, your your case well, yes. is sort of more nuanced, really, about if we're if we're having these debates all the time, then people are at least taking an interest in what's going on around them. Well, I suppose this is different, and I and I do understand the point of view of survivors in this case with the Stations of the Cross sculptures, um, because they're sort of actually part of the Lent service. As one person put it, they're the spiritual medium to God in this case, which kind of um, uh, puts a different light on it. Um, On the other hand, uh, Westminster Cathedral is Catholic, so removing any associations with these kind of scandals would probably be levelling the whole cathedral. I mean, you know... Religion has a history of two things, I think, uh, you know, mo- motivating horrendous acts and, and beautiful art. <laughs> and I think if you if you start removing the beautiful art, then um, then you're then you're left with with not very much. It's a really interesting debate um, that it was a really fascinating piece, particularly coming from the perspective of, you know, normally, you, you know, people are excited. They've got a sort of famous relative in the family. But um uh, obviously, less so in um, in this case. Um, just to bring you some uh, breaking news, it's been confirmed that the veteran comedy writer and performer Barry Cryer has died at the age of eighty six. I mean, an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, man. Seven decades he worked on stage, screen, radio, just rattled out jokes like nobody's business for all of them. Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett, Billy Connolly, Tommy Cooper. He was on Sorry, I Haven't a Clue for decades and decades. And um, James, you've reviewed, in fact, Barry Cryer's podcast just this week. Yeah, I wrote about it yesterday, and fortunately, I gave it five stars. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, he was a total genius. And this, his podcast, which is called um, Now Where Were We, is a total joy. It's him interviewing various celebrities, Stephen Fry, um, I'm trying to think who else, a few, a few other people. Um, and it's just brilliant. He's, it's really just full of anecdotes. He just talks endlessly about his career in showbiz and this kind of lost world of, I kind of think, you know, the kind of old showbiz entertainment establishment, the BBC, hanging out in Soho, bumping into John Gielgud in the Foyeva Hotel. Um, and it's just a total joy. And it's just amazing that, right, I mean, this is right. I mean, the last episode came out last week. This is right up to the end of his life in you know, podcasts, which certainly were not around when his career began. He's still producing this wonderful thing. And what a wonderful way for an obviously wonderful, lovely, extremely funny man to end his career. And I think that's why there were so many people in um, comedy and showbiz paying tribute to him today. Like you said, Stephen Fry saying such sad news, one of the absolute greats of British comedy. Uh, Barry Cryer, um, uh, Giles Brandreth has is, is tweeted saying, uh, Baz was just the loveliest guy, funny and just... I mean, a lovely, lovely man. I have one very poor Barry Cryer anecdote, which is when we were performing at the Edinburgh Festival in 2005, this film came out called The Aristocrats, which is about... There's a, there's a sort of joke in the comedy world. It's a very long-winded joke, and it's absolutely filthy. And there were, every 
comedian tells a different version of it. And they turned it into a film, and it's loads of comedians telling the same. And we, we went to see it, and we were really lucky. We found ourselves sitting next to Barry Clyde, who just... Um, howled with laughter throughout the whole thing and was just a love, just even in that small interaction, he was saying hello to everyone and I'll be honest, not every comedian in the world is the sort of person who's nice when they meet people they don't know and is polite and all that and he was just a, a lovely man but clearly loved the craft and the, com- you know, and just brought a lot of um, uh, laughs to lots of people and frankly we could do with all of that. Ha- can you top my Barry Cryer anecdote, Martha? <laughs> I can't. I have to say, though, it's also quite rare um, uh, from my experience with comedians that one who sort of genuinely laughs, well, perhaps not completely rare, but but, but there's something nice about um, a comedian who can genuinely enjoy other people's comedy. I think sometimes when yeah, you're yeah, yeah. in a particular industry, watching things from your rivals feels like work. And when there's a good joke, oh, God, why didn't I think of that? And there can be a certain kind of... Um, distance from it you don't really lose yourself in it and um, so that's nice that he could do that yeah my sense is he was, it, it saw it as a trade it was just a sort of you know i'm here to write jokes and we do you know and, and enjoying other people doing it well rather than seeing you know elevating it to an art form uh which yeah. then becomes all very competitive yeah and there's a, i think that's just the joy of this podcast is just often it can be really boring listening to people even in showbiz talking about you know the behind how does a joke work i once met this person who's really good at this thing that we all do um, but he's so sort of he's so humble about it, and he's just so sort of amused by it all and people's pretensions. And he's so down to earth. It's just really, um, it's just really lovely. Martha Gill and James Merritt there, and of course you can read James's column in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Stephen Pollard. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Well, let's turn our attention then to uh, Jewishness in Britain today and anti-Semitism. I mean, this is not, you know, something which is just in the past. It's been the subject of huge political controversy in recent years. There's a record number of anti-Semitic hate crimes reported last year. I'm joined now by Stephen Pollard, who uh, stepped down just last month as the editor of the Jewish newspaper, The Jewish Chronicle, after more than a decade in charge. Morning, Stephen. Hi, Matt. Um, What do you think about, first of all, on Holocaust Memorial Day? I think about the Holocaust. Um, I think it's, you know, the, the purpose of Holocaust Memorial Day is for us to remember it, uh, both in its own terms, in terms of what actually happened, but also, as, as you've 
been saying in in you know your clip and what in your intro just then in terms of the the resonance of it I, I'm always struck I, I gave a talk just I think just after I'd taken over as editor to the Holocaust Survivors Centre, which is a wonderful institution in Hendon, where Holocaust survivors gather for, it's a, it's a social club, in effect, for, for survivors. And I gave a talk about, I think about the JC or about something. And I began, as I always like to do when I'm talking about anti-Semitism and issues like that, I always like to say right at the start that, you know, whatever else one thinks, there's probably been no safer place for Jews anywhere in human history than in Britain today. If you, you know, if you, you have to get this into context. Um, so, you know, for all the increases in anti-Semitism and so on, always remember that context. But anyway, I began by that. And uh, at the end of my talk, uh, one of the survivors put up her hand and she said, yes, I, I take what you say, but I thought that in Berlin in the 1920s. And so, um, yeah. The, the, yeah, it, it, it sort of makes you realise that, you know, we can't be complacent is what I'm saying. OK, we'll come on to... Um... Anti-Semitism more generally in Britain today. But first of all, let's talk, let's talk about the mm. Jewish Chronicle because, you know, for, for readers of the Jewish Chronicle, they know exactly what it is, a really big deal in their lives. But explain to people who don't know uh, what, what, the, what the Jewish Chronicle is and does. Sure. So the, the JC is the oldest continually published Jewish newspaper in the world. We're 180 years old um, last year. And, um, you know, that's older than almost any newspaper on Fleet Street. Uh, and we haven't missed a beat. Um, and we are, in effect, it's, it's very difficult to describe the relationship of the, Jew, the Jewish Chronicle, or the JC, as everybody calls it. I was going to say, everyone um, calls so it the, the JC. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean you know, nobody calls it the Jewish Chronicle, it's the JC. Um, it, it's almost a part of being a British Jew. Um, so many people either buy or, or read their parents' copy on a Friday night or during the week. It's, it, JC readers are unlike almost any other newspaper reader in that for most newspapers, you know, you have your favourite newspaper, but it's quite a transactional um, thing. You know, you, li you like it because either it's political outlook or you like the columnists it happens to have or what have you. But with the JC, there's a kind of love-hate relationship that a lot of readers have with it. it <laughs> you almost feel you have to buy it. Um, and um, readers feel, I think, they, they, they feel such a sense of ownership of it in, in the kind of you know, communal sense that they take what we do incredibly seriously. So our readers are very, uh, you know, very vocal at expressing themselves. And, you know, pretty much every reader, I think, probably thinks they could do a better job than, the, <laughs> you know, what, what, whatever idiot is editing it at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure that's exclusive to the JC. I think that probably, <laughs> probably applies to most <laughs> yeah. people. And what, what, do, what, what is in the JC that you wouldn't get yeah. in another newspaper? What makes... Well, the, the, thing that, the thing that's really interesting, unlike almost any other communal newspaper or community newspaper, is the JC is pretty much, it's structured like any other newspaper in that you've got, you know, you've got features, comments, sport, cooking, lifestyle, home news, foreign news. But the difference is that they are flavoured in a way that are things that Jews in Britain should be aware of. When I took over as editor, the, the JC was basically about things that Jews were doing or things that happened to Jews. Um, I broadened it out slightly because I thought it was things that Jews should be interested in. So, for instance, in our foreign pages, which have always understandably focused on, you know, Israel, um, my view was that we should just as easily be interested in what's going on in Pakistan or in Iran and so on, because you couldn't understand the Middle East 
and Israel and you know threats to Israel, as it were, unless you understood that. Um, and similarly, in in Britain, it's the the, the our home news is not just you know things that Jews have done or you know anti-Semitic attacks and so on, but things that Jews should be interested in. So that could you know you could extend that across the whole gamut of um, of politics, really, which is why um, I think the paper pub punches above its weight so much in that you know we don't just restrict ourselves as a newspaper to you know as i say things about jews but but you know we we, we have reports and and uh, comments and so on on so many areas of of policy and what about on uh, the the sort of contentious issue of israel how how what, yeah. what what position does the jewish chronicle or the the jc i'm correcting myself now so the, so yeah so, so on, on israel the, the, the vast majority of, of British Jews, the overwhelming majority, are, are to, to use a phrase that weirdly has become contentious, Zionists. Uh, you know, it's become a term of abuse for a lot of people, mm. but basically it simply means the right of Jews to have their homeland in, in, in Israel. Um, and there is, the, there is a feeling that much of the mainstream media doesn't give Israel a fair crack of the whip, as it were, in terms of its coverage. I mean, some people are more virulent about it in terms of you know, regarding bias as being overwhelming against it and so on, other people less so. But basically, I would say most of the Jewish community feel that Israel doesn't get a fair, uh, a fair hearing. So they look to the JC for a paper that is unavowedly sympathetic to the, to the Israeli cause. In other words, you know, we, we, we accept that Israel should have a right to exist. It's not much of a thing to accept. So our coverage is very much from a friendly perspective. But in a way, that gives the paper more license to be critical when we feel, as a newspaper, that it's important to be critical. I mean, if you look at Israeli democracy, Israeli democracy is probably the most, um, you know, sort of screaming, angry democracy that exists, you know, people, almost every political shade is represented. People are very determined and virulent in their views and very, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a vibrant democracy in that sense. So, you know, there's nothing unusual about uh, Jews in the diaspora, Jews outside Israel, um, taking a firm view on, on Israeli policy. But as a general, kind of like the general foundation of, our, of the JC's coverage, it's, it's you know, sympathetic to, to the Israeli case. Because it's possible to uh, both simultaneously think that Israel should exist, but also take an issue with a particular policy decision on the day, you know, made by the government. Are those two things, well, are, it, you know, the, it is possible to hold both that. those thoughts at once. Indeed, there's that. And more generally, you know, there are a lot of British Jews who are very unhappy or uneasy, I should say, perhaps about, you know, the, the settlements and so on, um, which is obviously a cause of great anger outside the Jewish community. Um, but, but but their anger is, the, the Jewish anger is, you know, because it, it perhaps imperils the security of, 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 of the Jewish state and, and that a Jewish state shouldn't be an occupying force, as it were, um, or perceived as an occupying force. So, you know, there's, there's, it's perfectly possible to do that. And, in, and if we're you know, going to talk more broadly about anti-Semitism, I think it's really important not to conflate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, uh, criticism of the state of Israel. Um, with anti-Semitism, it's entirely possible. Many Jews are critical of, of individual policies, as you say. But the problem is that you know a lot of anti-Semites are also anti-Zionists, as it were, and, and you know that Israel has become a kind of touchstone for their anti-Semitism. Okay, well let's let's sort of move move in in that direction. Then you you um, you wrote that before you became editor of the JC, uh, you you sort of thought seven years was probably the rough sort of time you should spend <laughs> yeah. as an editor. 
So why did you end up spending 13 years doing the job? Yes, that's a very that's a very good question. Um, one of my one of my predecessors as editor said to me, you, you'll find that there's a kind of like cycle. And after seven years, everything will just repeat itself. And that was sort of that was sort of true. Um, and I had to be honest, I had started looking for other things to do. Um, and then um, I mean, to be, you know, there's a very straight answer to your question. The reason I I stayed so long was that in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party. And for many people, when he was elected, he was a kind of obscure figure, people outside the Labour Party. He was a kind of obscure backbencher who they haven't really heard of. But for readers of the JC, he wasn't at all. He was a notorious figure because we had been covering many of the things he'd been saying and doing, uh, because that's one of the things that the JC does, um, you know, for many years. And so... I was quite aware from the moment, I mean, I remember the, I remember the very moment when it became clear he was going to win. There was a Times YouGov poll of Labour Party members, um, which, you know, for the first time had him miles ahead of his, uh, of his competitors. And, you know, that was then backed up and it was clearly not an outlier, that poll. And so I remember sitting down, I was on holiday in Devon in a cottage at the time thinking, you know, this is going to happen, he's going to win. And no one really realises quite how important this is for, for, for so many reasons. And I sat down and wrote a, a leader, I wrote seven questions that Jeremy Corbyn needs to answer. And they were basically questions about some of his affiliations and some of the things that he'd said. And we splashed the leader as a front page leader in, you know, I think it was the first week of August. And uh, that, to a certain extent, set the tone for a, a lot of the rest of the leadership election um, because I think people m- much of the kind of mainstream political press hadn't quite realized the intensity of that issue for for the hard left I think that I think that's right and I, I mean I, I would hold my hands up that in that period in uh, 2010 when he was oh 2015 sorry when he was uh, running for leader I didn't know a huge amount about him he was just a scruffy bloke who you know yeah. uh, popped up at yeah. the back and actually probably um, didn't know very much about the issue of anti-Semitism as, you know, and yes. that particular problem with the hard left. And actually, I be- you know, I became quite mobilised, probably a bit strong uh, for it, but was yes. just so shocked that that was, you know, that this guy was the leader of the, oppos- of the opposition and potentially becoming, you know, with the potential to become prime minister, he became much closer than lots of people expected in 2017. With just this yeah. terrible record, which he didn't... I think the thing really shocked me was he didn't seem to mind that people thought that of him. I think that's that's very true. I, I think the issue is, I mean, it's like, you know, people are surprised that the Pope is against abortion, as it were. Well, of course he is, because he's the Pope. Well, similarly, you know, people are surprised that a man who spent his entire life mixing with, um, you know, mixing with anti-Semites and, and putting out you know, statements that, to, to be, you know, to be charitable um, are questionable, um, that he wouldn't mind those statements being associated with him. Because that's what he believes. That's the issue. People used to say to me, well, why doesn't he just apologise? Why doesn't he just move on? Well, you know, he, if, the one thing I think you probably can give Corbyn credit for is that he's consistent. He hasn't basically, he doesn't appear to have changed his mind on anything since he was, <laughs> since he was about 20. And I suppose um, the really cynical, so the cynical political views? thing to do would be to pretend not to think the things that he thought because that would be better yes. politically. So the fact, I suppose the fact that he stuck to them and, and seemed to shrug off whether it was the mural or the irony comments or whatever it might be, 
I suppose yeah. at least he, he was, yeah, at least, give him that. He was at least um, consistent. Uh, but, yeah. what, but what did that mean then, given that suddenly the word anti-Semitism was on front pages, it was in news yes. bulletins, um, and it became, you know, p- because there was a, p- a political battle going on in the Labour Party as well between the le- the, the left and the right wings of the Labour Party, um, and and Jews who may well have been going about their business not thinking about it terribly much, suddenly found themselves thrust into the centre yeah. and having to have a view, and anti-Semitism yes. suddenly, you know, becomes exactly an accepted part of public discourse. Exactly. So it was, I mean, in terms of it professionally, as it were, um, it was a unique, you know, you asked me at the beginning, why did I stay? It was a kind of unique moment in, in one's career when, you know, if you're editor of the Jewish Chronicle, to, to be entirely, um, you know, to, to strip it or to strip everything else away, you couldn't have a better, bigger story than, than, than you know, what than, than a man like Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the opposition. You know, it was a, it was just a big story. But, but, but beyond that, it was a kind of unique congruence. It was also personally something that I felt was probably the most important thing that had happened to me, uh, you know, politically in my lifetime. Um, it mattered to me because I was afraid, generally, you know, genuinely afraid of Corbyn and his mates, as it were, taking over uh, power. Um, of what I was afraid of what would happen. Um, what did so, it on that? What did you think would? And this is a genuine question. What did, what were yes. you concerned about happening if, you know, a few thousand votes had gone the other way in 2017? If Jeremy Corbyn had become prime minister at that point, what I was afraid of was that the the to, to put it no stronger that the climate in Britain would start to become untenable for Jews to live in. I mean, if you think in opposition, they were so. Um, blasé about dealing with anti-Semitism, that they were so comfortable, as it were, with the way they were behaving, that that was in opposition. How would it be when they were in power? When people, I mean, we've, we've seen across the globe what happens when people who have issues with Jews take power. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not some kind of um, strange story that one has to look into one's imagination to find out. Um, it's unfortunately something that's been going on for for two millennia what happens when people who have issues with jews take power so you know i was i was like like the vast majority as as all polling showed the vast majority of britain's jewish community were afraid or at least were deeply concerned about what would happen um so as editor i felt it was really important that we um that we exposed what was going on and i was extremely fortunate to have a brilliant political editor lee harpin um who was a kind of scoop getting machine and managed to get hold of all kinds of scoops we'd also i mean i'd also i could see where where things were going in terms of corbyn right from the start during the leadership election it's a story i only started to tell quite recently because it's quite funny in a way um during the leadership election the then head of his press operation um, came down to uh, Golders Green to our office to talk to us because she, quite sensibly, she could see that there was the possibility of a huge standoff from the start between Corbyn and the Jewish community, and she didn't want that. So she said, you know, what can we do to make things better for you? If, I, if, if Jeremy, for instance, was to write a piece for you, would you print it? And I said, absolutely, we would. Yes, we certainly would do that. Anyway, I knew... She said she'd go back and it would happen later that week, as it were. 
uh, weeks went by, two, three weeks went by, and this piece that kept being promised but would never happen. What she didn't realise was that I knew this piece was never going to happen because I had a mole in the Corbyn campaign. A wonderful, I used to work for the Fabian Society and the Labour Party, and I became very friendly with a wonderful, uh, unfortunately no longer with us, uh, trade union leader harry fletcher who was the uh, oh, probation of officers yeah, union yeah. yeah wonderful wonderful man who i was very friendly with i, I really you know he got on very well and harry uh who was very hard left i mean he was you know he was proper lefty um and he signed up for the corbyn campaign out of um you know, ideological support uh but but he was horrified by some of the things he was hearing at the meetings so he used to feed them to me um, for stories and so on. And one of the things he heard was when this lady, uh, when, when his then press secretary um, suggested at one of the team meetings that Corbyn writes for the JC, um, all that happened was Corbyn just looked and just went, no, and just left it at that. Yeah. Um, so I knew he this was going to happen. It. He just wasn't interested in any kind of um, attempt. And I mean, we, you know, there was a meeting um, a couple of years later with... Uh, representative Jewish bodies, uh, Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council, Community Security Trust, they all went to meet him in his office with Seamus Mill and various others. And the reports that came out after that meeting of the body language, that he basically, his body language was, why am I here? I don't give a damn about this or about you. Um, well, obviously, um, the, 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 in the end, the viewers, uh, not the viewers, the voters took a, took a, a similar view of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn and he... He departs as leader of the Labour Party, but having sort of brought up, levelled up almost, the, the, the level of anti-Semitism, the awfulness on social media and so on. What's it like now, just finally, Stephen Pollard, as we mark Holocaust Memorial Day, what is it like to be a Jew in Britain in 2022 against that backdrop of that terrible time uh, when yeah. it, it sort of dominated Labour politics? So as I started this this interview, I think it's important to point out there's probably never been a safer time or a better time to be Jewish in human history anywhere in the world than in Britain today. But that said, it, you know, there is a lot of poison around. There's a lot of poison, especially on social media. And one can't dismiss what happens on social media, because as we've seen with the uh, as we saw with the, 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 the terrorists in Texas last week, you held a synagogue hostage what happens on social media quite often seeps out into the real world as we've seen with anti-vaxxers for instance um and that poison is is really foul uh on social media but but beyond social media i mean today for instance if you look on twitter um there's video footage of an attack in stanford hill last night on on two jews just walking down the street um, uh, somebody just walks up to them and starts kicking them um you know it happens and anti-semitic incidents are at an all-time high since since records began and i really genuinely blame corbyn and the left for a huge proportion of that because they unleashed this poison they made it Mm. almost acceptable um to be out there and i think the, the problem is now that that genie is out of the bottle i really don't know how you put it back in That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.